I'm Cal Newport, and this is Deep Questions, episode 67. In today's episode, instead of me answering questions, I will be asking questions of our special guest, Tim Harford. Tim is one of my favorite thinkers and writers. He's a UK-based writer trained in economics at Oxford who turned his attention to applying those tools he learned to better understanding our world. He's written nine books. His first book, his breakthrough book, was The Undercover Economist, which has sold something like 1.5 million copies and counting. His newest book, which just came out, the day you're hearing this is just coming out, is called How to Make the World Add Up. That's the title if you live not in the U.S. If you live in the U.S., this same book has the title The Data Detective. This is the same book, and it is fantastic. He tells you how to make sense of data when trying to understand your world, how to use data to gain a better understanding, and how to avoid being tripped up or tricked by data being interpreted in ways that are a little bit less rigorous. He's a great writer, very numerically savvy, but also very good at telling stories. So in this episode, we cover a lot of ground. As I like to do, I got deep into Tim's story. How did he transition from an academic trajectory into a writing trajectory? What is his current setup right now as a writer? What has been going on during the pandemic? We talk about his very popular radio show in the UK. He has a show called More or Less on Radio 4 in the UK, which looks at the world through the lens of numbers and has been doing quite a bit of coronavirus coverage this past year and what that has been been like. We get into his new book, The Data Detective. In general, what I'm trying to do here is get a both a portrait of an interesting deep life trajectory while also extracting wisdom about Tim's expertise, you know, extracting wisdom from how he sees and understands the world, how to make sense of a world in which numbers play a big role. A little bit of a change from some of my prior interviews, I decided to not try to ask Tim to help me answer audience questions. I thought it might be better to just ask Tim questions that I think cover territory that you, the audience, seems to be interested in. We've done 67 episodes now, so I have a pretty good sense of the types of topics you're interested in. So I figured we would try the straight interview format. Two quick evergreen announcements. If you want to find out how you can submit your own questions for the normal format episodes of this show, you can get that information at calnewport.com slash podcast. I would also be remiss if I did not mention my new book, A World Without Email, which comes out on March 2nd. It is my magnum opus on the topic of tech and the workplace. If you pre-order a copy, which I really appreciate, hold on to that digital receipt. We will be imminently announcing a really cool bonus for people who pre-ordered the book. All right, that's enough announcements. I'm excited to get going with this interview with Tim. Before we get started, the last thing to do is just say thanks to one of the sponsors that makes the show possible. And I am talking about Monk Pack. M-U-N-K, not M-O-N-K. Now, here's the thing. Healthy snacks have a bad reputation. I don't know if you're like me, but I get frustrated when I'm reading books by experts on how to eat healthy where they say, yeah, and if you get hungry before a meal, just grab a handful of nuts. 
I don't always just want to grab a handful of nuts. That seems really boring and really dry. I want something healthy sometimes is better than just grabbing a handful of nuts. Well, that brings us to the Monk Pack Keto Granola Bars. This is a granola bar that has just one gram of sugar and two grams of net carbs. So it's something you can eat that is satisfying, but is not going to give you that high followed by a crash of filling yourself with a bunch of sugary nonsense. These were invented for people who are doing keto stuff, but they are end up being perfect for anyone who's just trying to eat better, have a little bit less carbs, have a lot less sugar when they're just snacking. These granola bars are soft. They're chewy. They have flavors like coconut, chocolate chip, honey nut, and blueberry almond vanilla. I really enjoyed the coconut chocolate chip. Quite a bit more satisfying than just grabbing a handful of nuts. They're also non-GMO, no soy, no trans fat, no sugar alcohols, no artificial colors. Look, if you're looking for a no-brainer for a healthy snack you'll enjoy without regretting, Monk Pack granola bars are a great option. So you can try it for yourself and see because we have a special deal just for our listeners. You can get 20% off your first purchase of any Monk Pack product by visiting monkpack.com and using the code DEEP at checkout. Monk Pack is so confident in their product, they have a 100% satisfaction guarantee. So if you don't like it, they'll exchange it or refund your money, whichever one you prefer. So to get started, just go to monkpack.com. That's M U. N-K-P-A-C-K.com and select any product, then enter the code DEEP at checkout to save 20% off your purchase. Once you're done feeding your body, it's time to feed your mind. And what tool better to help you do this than Blinkist? It's one of the oldest sponsors of the Deep Questions podcast and for good reason, because what they offer is a great fit for what my audience is looking for which is an efficient, effective way to get smarter. You know how this works. It's a subscription service. They have 4,000 nonfiction best-selling books, over 27 categories that have been summarized into 15-minute text and audio explainers. So you can very quickly get the big ideas out of those books. My goal here is not to get you to read less, but to get you to read more of the right things, and Blinkist can help you do that. When you're interested in a topic, in just one afternoon, you can expose yourself to these 15-minute summaries of multiple books in the topic, get the lay of the land, figure out the big ideas, who are the big players, and figure out which of these books seems like it's the best fit for what you're looking for, and then you can just buy that one to read in more detail. This surround and attack strategy of where you get summaries of many books and then buy one to read is a fantastic way to quickly become an expert in a lot of different topics. Blinkist is your partner in this initiative. So here's how it works. Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. If you go to Blinkist.com deep, you can start a free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist Premium membership. And that's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash deep to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash deep. And now on to our interview with Tim Harford. Tim, uh, thank you for joining the Deep Questions podcast. It's my pleasure, Cal. I'm a, a loyal listener to the podcast, so it's going to be really weird when I finally get to listen to this episode and hear my own voice, but thank you. 
really glad to be yeah. on the show. I mean, in some sense, this is a a sort of um, low fidelity makeup for what was supposed to be. It was been a delightful event. You know, last March I was coming out to London. We were going to be on stage together. There was there's a theater. Uh, they had sold out all the tickets, and then there was this virus. <laughs> it started yeah. spreading to do it. So this is like our makeup. Yeah, but it's always important to look on the bright side. So this is coinciding with the publication of, of a, a book of yours and a book of mine. And also, I'm guessing a hundred times as many people will hear it as would have ever, ever have come to that event. So can't feel too sad. It's true. That's right. We were not we were not in full disclosure selling out the what the O2 arena or whatever i i remember at some point jordan peterson was on some book tour and was in like stadiums or something like this i yes i, I think our theater would have been a little bit more intimate but uh that's good this is th that is the bright side um technology is advanced and now this is a parable for distributed digital communications <laughs> versus old school communication so uh there we go this is a yeah. Di digital technology works if you know how to use it that's the message i drew from digital minimalism you just got to be mindful about the way you use it and we're using it right i hope exactly well so i like to do uh with the show when i have on guest special guests i like to go back into their story a little bit my listeners are interested in people who live interesting deep lives how they got there and, and what principles guide them. So I'm going to walk you a little bit through your story and then we will from there move on to The Data Detective, your new book, which is coming out just as I believe this podcast will be posted. So we will, we will get into the nitty gritty of that, but let's start with you. I'm trying to understand your early story. And as far as I can tell, we go back to the 1990s. You're at Oxford, then you get a master's at Oxford. And I'm not sure if this is a true quote or not. You'll have to tell me if this is true. At some point you asked your main advisor about doing a PhD and he said, you seem to have everybody out there fooled about your abilities. So I don't think you should come here to demonstrate, demonstrate your manifest limitations. That can't possibly be true, is it? He's, he's a good friend of mine, still a good friend. We, we went for a, a socially distanced walk together just last week. He's a great guy. But one of the important things, apart from being a brilliant economist, his name is Paul Klemperer. He's a great game theorist, auction theorist. One of the things that makes him great is he's, he's honest and direct. And he said to me, basically, yeah, you can be an academic, you'll be fine. But you seem to be doing really well as a, as a writer, as a journalist. You're having fun. Why would you come back here and and be a not terribly good academic. And I think that's a, it's a great piece of advice. So I, I took his advice and I, I haven't regretted it. So when I look at your CV, I see this jump from 98, you're sort of finishing up your education to you joining the Financial Times in 2003. But as you just mentioned, even as a student, your advisor was talking about you having success as a journalist. So walk us back. What is the lead up to you joining the Financial Times in 2003? So I'm probably misremembering exactly how, what he said because I wasn't a journalist at the time. But he, what I did was a year of teaching at a university in Ireland before I did my master's degree. That was kind of weird. It was a bit of a historical accident. But I was basically teaching students who were my age. I'd just finished my bachelor's degree and I was teaching undergraduates who were 
the same age as me, which was weird and wonderful and a privilege. And that's what made me think maybe I did want to become an academic. But after I finished my master's degree, I uh, did a few things. The main, the most interesting one was working for the scenario planning team at Shell International. Of course, people mm. will know Shell. It's a great big bad oil company. And I don't want to persuade you that it's not a great big bad oil company because it is. But the scenario planning team was fascinating, uh, full of amazing people, really trying to think deeply about what the future holds 10 years, 20 years, 30 years out, interdisciplinary, full of mavericks, full of people who didn't fit in to an oil company, including my wife, uh, who, who I met there. She was an environmentalist. She had joined Shell because she wanted to get them to clean up their act. And so it was a very interesting place to work. Stressful and and I had mixed feelings as I had a love-hate relationship working for this big oil company, but I learned a lot and I had great colleagues. And I think that was then the the launch pad to the next step, which was in my spare time writing a book called The Undercover Economist. No agent, no publisher, no reason to believe anybody would ever publish it. But I just I, I got it done. I, I carved out the time, wrote the book, and then got an internship at the Financial Times. And that's really where it all took off. I mean, the details are actually quite kind of complicated and nobody cares about the details, but that's that's where it all came from. That's interesting. So the scenario planning you were doing at Shell, this was a place where you were seeing applied economics happening? Applied economics, but not just that, because a lot of what the, the scenario planning methodology calls for is to really deeply immerse yourself into all of the different possible lenses that you might look through to to try and figure out what's going on in the future. So the idea is that rather than going, uh, okay, we got some data, we got some economic theory, here's what we think is going to happen to the economy. You sit down with a political scientist, say, who will tell you, oh, well, you've got this theory about the economy of Brazil, but wait till I tell you about the politics of Brazil. And then you, you sit down with someone who really understands, say, uh, hydroelectric power and Brazil's investments in hydroelectric power, and then somebody else who really understands the international relations component. So this is, for example, if you're doing a scenario for the future of Brazil, and someone else who's, who studied uh, social movements and environmental campaigning in, in Brazil. And so you're trying to see a problem from all kinds of different angles. And I mean, that's something I've done ever since. One of the fun things about what I do is to be able to to try to see things from different angles, to, to bring different disciplines to bear. Of course, it's also a, a tension because you can end up spreading yourself too thin. So that's why I, I like to, to read your books, as a, just to keep me on the straight and narrow and not get too distracted. Yeah, but that, that is interesting. So uh, data in context is maybe a, a good umbrella. And that now makes a lot of sense, this origin story, that you're in the scenario planning group where data and applied economics are being combined with other types of information expertise to try to figure out what's going on, which is all radically different. I'm looking at what you would have been doing. I, I took a glance at your master's thesis. So you were pretty hardcore game theory, right? Sequential auction with financially constrained bidders. So it's not, this is not a uh, Levitt style story where you were a, a microeconomist uh, who was specializing in fine-tuned data analysis and was like, I will now use my tools honed in my expertise as an academic to, to, to analyze data sets in interesting ways. 
I'm now going to apply that to new problems. You were actually coming out of a strain of economics. It was a, this is hardcore mathematical, not very, if I'm understanding it properly, not very data driven at all. So, so that was the path that you turned away from. If I understand it would have been, I have to do competition against math guys <laughs> trying yeah. to do game theory. I have to be, I have to be John Nash I'm doing comp. I'm doing John Nash stuff. And that was, that's a pretty daunting competitive, uh, whatever tournament tree there, I would assume. Game theory can get very abstract and very mathematical. I, sh I should say, Cal, I'm extremely impressed that you've looked at my thesis topic. I, I've done a lot of interviews over the last 20 years. I don't think anybody's ever bothered to go and look at what the, the thesis was about. But yeah, it's. I, I would probably be exaggerating to say it's pure math because I know pure math gets really pure. But yeah, yeah. It's, it's theory. And, and I loved it. I, re I really enjoyed it. But I wasn't great at it. I was fine, but I wasn't great. And so it was good, I think, to get out into the world and to find something that maybe I had more of an, an advantage and put my put my skills to broader use. Yeah. Well, okay. Now, now I'm, there's a, a brief diversion, but let's just do it because I'm fascinated by it. So uh, the game theory of the type you're studying, it's in a very similar family, I think, of mathematics like I do as a theoretical computer science, by which I mean it's applied mathematics. And so, yeah, the, the pure mathematicians are like, why are you, these applications like the auctions are so, you know, so prosaic, but to, uh, to other scientists, it seems hopelessly mathematical. And I, I was around at MIT, a lot of superstars, and I'm sure you were around some superstars at Oxford. Yeah. When it comes to this type of John Nash stuff. I mean, I'm using that, actually, this is John Nash stuff, but I'm using that just more generally. So people have an image of it's, you know, drawing equations on the glass, uh, that type of work. What separates? What's what was your opinion? Because you had to decide whether to do this or not. What what separates? What's your theory on like what makes some people stars in that? And when you're trying to do the nature nurture background habits, did you have a working theory that you applied and, and helped you make the decision not to keep going? If I'm honest, I would say I, I didn't Newport it. I didn't I didn't have my my theory that said this is what I should be doing or this is what I shouldn't be doing. I asked Paul for advice. He gave me advice and I think it was, it was good advice. So, and I don't think that was such a bad thing. If you ask the right person for advice, you, you, you're going to do all right. But what did separate out the, the top theorists? I think the ones I admired the most were able to make really serious conceptual or theoretical breakthroughs while at the same time keeping it practical. So you may know that auction theorists uh, shared the Nobel Prize in Economics, or I should say, to be correct, the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economics, just a few months ago, uh, Milgram and, and uh, Robert Wilson. And they are guys who were very sophisticated in their theory, but at the same time were constantly going back to real-world problems and trying to work, solve real-world problems and ask, well, does the theory help us solve the real world problem? And if it doesn't, let's go back and do a better theory and then go back to the real world and then go back to theory. It's something I admired in Paul Klemperer as well. And in a very small way in my own thesis, the, the, the idea of studying sequential auctions under budget constraints, what does that mean? Basically means, let's say you're bidding in an auction against somebody and you know they're going to be back tomorrow and they're going to be back the day after and the day after to bid in a different auction but maybe you could use up their money 
so they run out of cash and then you can win the auctions cheaply, maybe not today or tomorrow, but, but further down the track. How do you think about that problem? Which, by the way, anybody who plays Monopoly knows that this is the basic problem you're, you're faced with in Monopoly. That was a theoretical problem that hadn't been well studied, but it came from a practical problem because I had a conversation with someone at Shell who was thinking in exactly this way. I, I want to enter an auction and bid against somebody. I don't actually want to win the auction. I just want to make them burn through their budget and then I'll, I'll win something cheaper next time there's an auction. And people just hadn't properly modeled that real world application. So that's what I went to do. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't understand the degree to which in some of these applied mathematical fields, there's so much of it is the question. Uh, it's not just coming up with an interesting question, but it's this line of having an interesting question that is not trivial, but is also tractable. And that that describes my academic life is <laughs> struggling to find struggling to find that sweet spot and then convincing people it's interesting. There's a, uh, there is a there's an interesting connection to the type of salesmanship you might think is relevant as an author. Hey, I want to yeah. convince you about this idea. It, people don't realize the degree to which that runs through applied math. But moving on to you as an author, so you, you join Financial uh, Times as an intern, move up to a columnist. You're working on the side on this book, The Undercover Economist, which uh, the column you end up writing for the Financial Times is in the same style. So I don't know what the chicken or the egg is here, but this style is very successful. That book was a, a runaway hit. How did you develop the the style that worked for that book and your column? Where did that come from? This, let me take something in the real world and apply this sort of economics hat to it. Where did that come from? So it always began with curiosity. Uh, I would see things, before I had any thought that I would ever be a writer, I would see things in the world. Like I'd walk into a Starbucks and I'd be looking at the prices on Star the Starbucks coffees and I'd be going, huh. That's interesting. I wonder, I wonder why it's like that. I wonder why it's not some different way. Why are there that many coffees? Why, why are the price differentials the, the way I see them? Uh, there was a particular thing I noticed that they were charging, this wasn't Starbucks, it was another coffee chain, but they were charging 10 cents extra to put fair trade coffee in your cappuccino. And I was thinking, I don't think the fair trade coffee costs 10 cents extra Right. You know, per cup, I think it costs nothing per cup. So why, why, would, why are they doing that? Why would they actively discourage people by penalizing them for, for buying fair trade coffee? So just thinking through these sorts of questions and going, ah, I know, I, I have an economic idea. I, I went to a lecture which, which answers that question or which throws light on that question. So that's really where it all started. It was this love of the subject, the academic subject, that I've been studying, plus observing and being curious about the real world. And so you, you had no shortage. That, that's what made this a rich vein. There was no shortage of examples, which must have been exciting once you realized that. But once you started looking around, there was no shortage of examples where economic thinking was influencing these things we were seeing. And it could be explained. And the explanation sort of made sense, which is, again, like, it goes back to the math problem. It's, it's non-trivial, but it's also tractable. Yeah, and the world is full of really interesting uh, phenomena, and you can ask lots of interesting questions about it. And of course, it's nice if you can come up with some answers as well. And that's what I did. And I think at the time, I was very lucky. I didn't realize that there was so much enthusiasm out there. The Undercover Economist was in some ways a very naive book. I didn't really understand 
how to write a book. I didn't understand how to sell a book. And maybe the people found that rather appealing, actually, that, that, that this, there was just something quite charming about that. I don't know. I really don't know, actually. Did it take off right away? It, it did. It immediately sold out in the U.S. So it came out in the U.S. late 2005, and they assured me, hey, you know, if people buy it, don't worry, we can print more. And of course, it sold out straight away, and <laughs> then they spent three weeks trying to get the printing presses uh, rolling. Yeah. In the U.K., it was a... Uh, it, it was successful, but it was one of those books where it just w floated on the outskirts of the bestseller list and just stayed there and stayed there and stayed there. For, I think it was in it was in the top thirty nonfiction paperbacks for for over a year. I don't think it ever made the top ten. It just sat there solidly selling and selling and selling, um, which I guess indicates that it wasn't about the the publicity or some breakthrough review. It was just people picked up the book and they liked it and so did other people. They told their friends, which yeah. is, I guess is the, the best way for a book to catch on. Yeah, sure. Well, that, that's definitely the, the deep work story. You know, it just kind of kept selling, selling more, never, you know, number one book in the country. We, you know, uh, featured on whatever, whatever, uh, just sold. And if you just multiply that by enough years, uh, though it, it has not done undercover economist numbers. What do you think, open the uh made people receptive this was around the time of freakonomics right so that was that was kind of in the air i'm trying to think 2000 i'm thinking of what this time period was like in the yeah, US. It, it was it was the freakonomics era funnily enough cal um, we're having this conversation uh, about an hour ago i stopped uh, uh, an interview with steve levitt so steve levitt just interviewed me for for his podcast uh, so i'm having a really exciting day i'm getting to talk to all of my heroes uh, but we were remembering because I actually interviewed Levitt, the the co-author of Free Economics, a month before Free Economics came out. I was still I wasn't working for the Financial Times, but I was doing some freelance work for them, and I I was living in the states, in in DC, in fact. And I emailed my editor and said, "Hey, there's this there's this book coming out. It looks like it's going to be really good. This economist is really interesting. He's got a great reputation. Why don't I?" fly to Chicago and have lunch with him and interview him for the Financial Times. And my editor said, yeah. So off I went to, to interview him. And uh, yeah, Levitt just said, hey, I just assumed you were a real journalist. <laughs> I didn't realize you weren't a real journalist when you interviewed me that time. But So that was in the air. Undercover Economist came out about six months after Free economics. So I was very lucky. Some people said, oh, you're cashing, you were cashing in on the success of Free economics. Well, I was accidentally, but you can't you can't write and publish a book that quickly. So I was I was riding that wave. All these people were looking around and going, "I love free economics. Let me read another cool economics book." And all of the copycats of free economics, well, they weren't going to be out for another year and a half. Whereas my book was right there. So I think I think that was part of it. It also took off in Korea, South Korea, something crazy, and I got no idea why. Sometimes yeah. these things just happen. People buy your book and you don't know why, and you just got to be thankful. So then what is your, if we get to like 2005 or 2006, what's your professional configuration? Would you describe yourself as a full-time journalist? Would you describe yourself as a writer that did some writing for Financial Times? How did, how did you see yourself? Like what was the, what was the professional setup at that point? Uh, so at the time I was working at the World Bank. I did two years at the World Bank. Very interesting place to work quite like Shell in some ways, really smart people, thinking deep, long-term 
thoughts about the world. But I, I left there to become a full-time writer the beginning of 2006. So Undercover Economist had just launched in the US, was doing really well, just about to launch in the UK, where it also did well. And the, the FT, I'd done this internship for the FT, and they, they brought me in and they put me on the editorial board, effectively just writing editorials, writing leaders, which is a great place actually for a young journalist to be because in some ways it's a very senior position because you are the voice of the newspaper. On the other hand, like if you say something stupid, a colleague can just lean over and, and tell you to change it. Whereas if yeah. you're a junior reporter, you go out and you misreport something, you make a mistake, people won't necessarily know you've made a mistake. So it was a, it was a, a great place to be. And I did that for, um, I think, three, four, five years. I, I forget exactly, probably five years. And then said, okay, I've got this column. I was writing the column throughout. I'm going to go part-time, just do the column, not do the editorials. And the time that frees up, that's more time for my BBC radio work. It's more time for more books. So in principle, I'm a, I'm a staff writer on the Financial Times. They are my employer. But like you, I, I've got these various side hustles that turn out to be a lot of fun and, and consume a lot of attention. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm interested in this model. I mean, well, for one thing, I, I couldn't help but notice and it impresses me. Uh, you know, you published your first book right around the time... I published my first book, but you've published, if I count right, nine books with this new one where yeah. I'm only up to seven. So <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm already impressed by that. How do you see, how, how do you understand Tim uh, Harford Incorporated, right? As a, you have the part-time staff job at Financial Times, you have a pretty regular book rhythm and you've done a lot of other media. As you mentioned, you had a TV show in 2007. You've done various BBC radio shows. There's, uh, You're now involved with Gladwell's podcasting company. What's the? I'm assuming you applied your economic skills and you have a, a brilliant model that the rest of us authors should all <laughs> know about. So how do you think about it? What is, the, what is the, the engine here? What's the business plan? So I think the main thing, it's partly that I've taken, advantages of, uh, taken advantage of opportunities as they've come up. So when the BBC said, will you present a radio show for us? I said, yeah, that sounds great. And that gradually moved from quite a small niche thing in a, a time that not many people listened to, to more repeats, more better time slots, more shows. So it, it, it's gradually grown partly as a result of these big number stories, like the, the referendum on EU membership and, and more recently coronavirus. So I, I've grabbed onto the, you know these opportunities when they've when they've come, but the main thing I I see is as being the there's there's risk mitigation. So I've had the experience. You've had the same experience of all paid lecture work just drying up with coronavirus. Like people used to very kindly pay me to go and stand on a stage and show off, which I really enjoyed. They don't do that anymore. Hopefully the virtual, one day they will. Are you finding COVID. virtual? Are you finding virtual? I, I found virtual has become a thing in the last few months in the way that it wasn't early in the pandemic. I don't know if you're seeing that where people are now willing to pay for Zoom. But Yes, I, I have seen that. Uh, there was there was a moment where you had pre-existing speeches and some of them went virtual. Then things went very quiet and the virtual has picked up a bit. 
but it's not the same. It's not as fun. It's yep. not as well paid. There isn't as much work, but but there is that, and and I do that, and it's it's fun. It's been fun to try to get good at that. My wife is a photographer, so she helps me with the camera and the lighting, and yeah, you know, to try to there's a there's a craft to enjoy in trying to get better at this new form. But the 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 point is that when that happened, the BBC called me up and said, "We need more shows from you. We need we need." The, the country needs to understand this pandemic. You're our numbers guy. We want you on air more often explaining the numbers behind the virus. So, you know, one thing went away, another thing picked up and it wasn't as well paid, but it felt really satisfying and really important to be at the heart of that story. Is this, With, now are you yeah. talking about your Radio 4 show at this point? Yeah. So this Radio 4 show is called More or Less. I'm doing another Radio 4 show now called How to Vaccinate the World. No prizes for guessing what that one's about. But that's a, yeah. a weekly current affairs. The, shing, the shingles vaccine, right? We, yeah, it's just exactly. time to, we, we got the scourge of shingles. Can, but can you briefly explain for the U.S. listeners, how, how do we understand Radio 4? When you think of this as like a, like a, a national NPR show, like what's the right equivalent? Uh, yeah, I think if you imagine a, a nationally syndicated NPR show, that's, that's your, your best model. Uh, it's, it's publicly funded, so there's no advertising uh, on, on Radio 4. Uh, it's a BBC channel, and it's the premier talk radio channel. So the the morning news on Radio Four, you know, all the agenda setters, all the politicians, all the journalists are listening to the morning news, and that's that's setting the, the agenda for the day. And right. my show, more or less, is broadcast at nine o'clock in the morning. So immediately after oh. the morning news, then you get more or less, and we we do that weekly. So that's. Um, I mean that's been very good for uh, for my profile in the UK, yeah. of course. And can you explain the premise of the show for the, yeah. the US listeners? So the so the basic idea is we use numbers to understand the world, which is also the premise of of my book, The Data Detective. So partly we're debunking dubious statistics. A politician said a thing; it's not true. So we're going to fact check them and we'll tell you what's true. But but more importantly, to also say, well, we we want to help you understand not only what's false, but also what's true. We want to help you understand the world by looking at the data. Over the last year, it's been 90% coronavirus data, of course. But we always have room for, for a story about something else. But more broadly, there might be just a fun story about recreational maths. Somebody might have made some claim about, I don't know, the value of sleep or something. And we say, well, what does the evidence actually show us about the value of sleep? We get a lot of listener emails and basically just have have fun with numbers for an audience who are not necessarily numerous at all. It's just on standard on the radio, primetime radio. So we're um, we're trying to explain numbers to people who maybe don't necessarily feel comfortable with them. So that's that's a it's been a real privilege to be involved in that. How um, many people are involved with a, a show on terrestrial radio? like that i mean what's the yeah. overhead i was going to say in response to your earlier question about the business model one of the things that is fun about doing these things is that they the process is very different so the column it's just me i write the column and then i send it to the ft and then a group of super smart editors you know fact check fix any problems and publish it and it's it's very solo operation more or less is totally different so there will be an editor who He's basically the guy who gets blamed if something goes wrong. Uh, there's a producer 
she's the person who actually makes everything happen. And there'll be an, a, an assistant producer and a researcher. So we've got on the front end of that, editor, producer, second producer, reporter. So that's four of them plus me. There'll be a, an assistant helping with the admin. And then separately, there'll be a studio engineer who will mix it. So you're talking, you're talking five people maybe. And th three of those people are probably working full time on the show. I'm not working yeah. full time. I'm I'm part time, and uh, the editor will have other shows to supervise. The production assistant will be helping with other other productions, but it's a full time job for for quite a few people to produce half yeah. an hour of radio. And when you say you work on it part time, but I mean you are the host, right? So you're just saying the the time required from you to actually uh, write, finish writing the episodes and come and record is like a part time job. Yes, but so it's, I'm, it's not as if there's I'm, other hosts. Yeah. No, I'm the host. The other people will appear on the, you know, on the radio. So that I, I will sometimes interview our reporters about a story they've done. But I'm the host for those who who listen to This American Life, for example. You know, I'm the I'm the Ira Glass. Ira Glass. I, I I frame it. I I write the words. The words come out of my mouth. But I'll be introducing other stories, and so the process of that will be: I'll get emails from my from my team saying, "Are you are you free to?" do an interview at two o'clock tomorrow. Here's the brief. Here's who we're interviewing. Here's the link to record the interview. Back in the day, I would actually have been in a physical office doing all this stuff, but now it's, of course, all remote. Uh, and so I'll, I'll read the brief. I'll, if I've got any questions, I'll ask the questions. I'll do the interview. And then the interview, the audio will go off to the producer who will decide what goes in, what goes out, how it's going to be edited. And then it'll be mixed by the sound engineer to make it all sound beautiful. So there's a, big, nice. there's a big team involved. Now, how would you compare that to uh, your new Cautionary Tales podcast? Now, you're doing this with Pushkin, so there's people involved, but what's the? you're doing this kind of simultaneously, right? These are both shows, one podcast, one radio. They started very roughly the same time. I'm interested in the, the compare and contrast there. Yeah, so they're, I mean, they're very different shows. So actually, more or less has been going on for 15 years now. Well, nearly 20 years, but I've been involved for nearly 15 years. But Cautionary Tales has just been going for the last year or so. And that's a podcast about things going wrong and what we learn from the things that go wrong. So I'm, I'm telling a story of um, an oil tanker running into rocks in broad daylight or a jazz concert. Uh, just turning into a, a complete car crash or the Oscar being given to the wrong movie. So I'm, I'm telling these stories and then I'm trying to say, okay, what's, this, what's the social science behind what happened? The psychology or the engineering or the statistics? What, what can we learn to prevent that sort of thing happening in our own lives? It's a really fun project. It's quite different in terms of the production process. So there's much more of me up front so I'm deciding what we're going to do. I'm doing all the research. I'm scripting everything. So there's no reporter saying, oh, we're going to do a story about uh, drug deaths in Scotland. Here's the guy we're talking to. Here's what you need to know. Dial in at 2 o'clock to do the interview. It's much more, I want to tell a story about uh, the invention of D&D &D and what went wrong when there was a massive panic about D&D &D in the uh, the late 70s. I'm going to research all the story. I'm going to tell the story. I'll write the script. That's all me. Then it, I'll send the script to 
colleagues at Pushkin, and they'll give comments. We'll do a table read. I'll read the script. It's amazing what you learn when you just read out your own script. You yeah. go, oh, that doesn't make any sense. Why didn't I see that already? But when your lips are moving, you learn something new. Get all the great feedback from these, the, these table reads. Go back, edit it, change it, then record it. And then, of course, it goes back, back to my producer, Ryan, who then works further magic because we have uh, actors, we have a composer, sound mixing. So again, there's a big team, but the workflow is very different. It's much more the f it's much more front loaded for me. I'm involved very intensively at the beginning in creating the the basic structure and the basic script and the basic audio, and then it just goes off and magic things happen to it. And then I've got nothing to do with any of that until it drops into my feed and I, I hear the podcast and I can't can't quite believe how beautiful they've made it sound. Yeah. Well, and, and let me just quickly uh, offer my apologies. I got before the timeline wrong. I didn't realize that more or less you'd been doing that for 15 years. So it's, so what you're saying is recent was just the shift to coronavirus as the main topic. Yeah. I sorry to be unclear. Okay. Yeah. So the, 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 there was a shift to prime time about a year ago that was purely coincidental and that had been discussed. And then before we even did it, having just decided we were going to do it, uh -huh. the, the virus hit, everyone was locked down, and they said, actually, you know, we wanted you on in April, we want you on now in March, we want you on immediately. We, and it was kind of exciting. I felt, you know, it's like a little bit of, of uh, oh, wow, people, want, people really want me. I mean, it's pathetic. There's people dying. It's a global crisis. But just the sense, I was very yeah. grateful to have something to do, to that I felt I could contribute and I could help at a yeah, time when imagine. so many people were just being told, sorry, you know, the theaters are closed, the restaurants are closed, just, just stay home. There's nothing you can do. Yeah. To be, now, did you get to go into the, were you able to go into the studio or were they doing your audio remote? It was, it was remote for months. And then over the summer, things really died down. We had really low caseloads. I mean, it's, tr we're having a really bad time this winter, so it's tragic that we've let it come back. But so I was back in the studio you know, socially distanced and we were all spaced out in the summer. And then, yeah, more recently has been back under the duvet, which is, a I mean, I feel sorry for my children who are tiptoeing around the house for seemingly for hours. They're all homeschooled right now. They're all st studying from home. And I mean, I've been talking into a microphone feels like all day and I'm still talking into a microphone. I'm having fun they're all hiding somewhere so they don't disturb us. So it's tough on them, but yeah. I think for, it, it's surprising. A few things do slip between the cracks. There are some process issues. There are some problems, misunderstandings occasionally. But it is surprising what you can get done. And, and I would never have believed it was possible. So this is maybe going a little bit too deep, a little bit too psychoanalysis here. But looking over your background... There's this one kind of trajectory with your career, which has kind of come to full fruition with more or less moving the prime time that starts back with the undercover economist. And it's, you know, your, your superpower is, uh, I can understand data and, um, how it explains what happens in the world and what's going on in the world and numeracy as a way of understanding of issues beyond just the realm of numbers is this important literacy uh, and you're very good at that. And the undercover economist is like that. The data detective is like that. More or less is you know very well respected show that's like that. And then there's this this other thread where you're trying 
different things, right? So there's a there's a period in your book writing where it seemed like you were maybe moving over to more more broadly to the business space. So you had like Adapt um, or Messy or uh, this is not a business book, but you had that fascinating book I really enjoyed about the the objects, <laughs> this collection of objects that explains uh, a lot in history. And then I, I would put Cautionary Tales, your podcast. Uh, your new podcast is sort of in that, okay, here's going somewhere new. It's social psychology, it's storytelling. So how accurate or not accurate am I in seeing there's these two trajectories and both of them are being pushed ahead in kind of fits and starts in your career? I think that's reasonably accurate. I mean, you've imposed a pattern on it that I think it, it's it's actually more random and sporadic than that. So I, for, I, for example, I wrote Adapt which is, I think, yes, it's a business book. It's a book about experimentation. And I mean, it's not an out and out airport who moved my cheese kind of book, but it's a book about the importance of experimentation, trial and error in business and in life. But then the book after that was The Undercover Economist Strikes Back, which was a book trying to explain macroeconomics in a, in a kind of fun, accessible way, which was a really good challenge. I, I had more fun than I expected writing that book. Then the book after that was Back to Messy, which in a sense was a sequel to Adapt. It was about the importance of improvisation and spontaneity and things that can't be planned and things that can't easily be quantified. And then the book after that was 50 Inventions That Shaped the Modern Economy. So it's a technological history. All of that's going on while I'm also writing my columns, giving my talks, doing my radio. So yeah, if you can find a pattern in that, I'm impressed. I think the pattern is is it's this simple, which is I'm really interested in stuff. I all kinds of stuff. I find the world very interesting. And when I come across an interesting idea, I want to tell people about it. And the common thread in everything I do is, hey, I thought this was really interesting and I want to tell you a story about it or I want to explain it to you. Or best of all, I want to explain it to you while telling a story about it. That's the best. And so how, this is a British question, um, you have, you're an OBE or have an OBE, the most excellent order of the British empire. Is that, uh, yes. the, is that the designation that gets you called sir? Or can you explain this to us? Uh, I've watched some crown, but yeah, <laughs> I'm not up to speed. To be called sir, I think it's, I have to have a KCBE, which is a knight commander of the British empire. Sorry, I'm just officer of the British empire. So yeah. I know it's, it's super weird. Basically. It's a it's a medal of honor. I'm very, very lucky to have it, given that most people who get it have done amazing charity work or have taken big risks. They've worked for the police, the fire service, they've worked in the army. And right. here I am. I'm just kind of having fun and doing in perfect safety, doing exactly what I love to do and get paid perfectly well for it. And now they give me a medal as well. So I'm I'm very lucky. Right. Yeah, but the medal like, was yeah, it was specifically it, for uh public understanding of economics though, right? So that's, it's, yeah. a, it's another sign that, that that thread, there's something that you're doing there that is at a level that very few people are doing. That, that, that was what the, yes, the citation was for, I think for services to improving economic understanding. So yeah, it's for helping people understand economics. And yeah, it, and it's like a mini knighthood. There, there, are, there are a lot more OBEs than there are uh, knights, but um, it's all dressed up in the, the the regalia you go to Buckingham Palace. I met Prince Charles, and he pinned the medal on my chest, and it was extraordinary. But fundamentally, I suppose 
it would be like being given a medal by by the president or by Congress, or it's the the British state saying, we, we think you're doing a good job. Keep going. Does your publisher pressure you about topic or do you have a setup where it's we kind of whatever you want to do we just you kind of just write at a regular rhythm and you you kind of have that figured out with them or do you get we want more economics how does that how's that relationship in terms of their role in helping you figure out what you want to do it's mostly pushed by me uh, but we you know we have conversations so for example the 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 book about inventions 50 inventions that shape the modern economy in the uk i published two of them they were based on a, a totally different radio series so the, cal this is the secret if you can do a radio series that also the script of the radio series make a good book then you can be more productive so it's I'll really put very that down. yeah have yeah. a good to-do list do a radio series based on what you want to write a book about Time block. All right, got it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's it's right up there with time block. Um, so, in the UK, my publisher said, "Oh, this is great. Yeah, we'd love to do one book based on the radio series, and, and that's it. We don't want to do a second book because diminishing returns." But then, they actually changed their mind. The, the first book had sold sufficiently well. They said, "Actually, we do want to do a second book." Whereas in the US, they they were like, the first book's fine." It's fine. We 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 enjoyed it. Sold perfectly, adequately, but didn't sell well enough that we would want to do a, a follow up. So that's the sort of push you're getting. But I was I was making it anyway because I was I was doing it for radio because I was having fun. So. Yeah. Now, do you have a set schedule for book writing? You know, every two years, and that means when I'm one year out, I should be here, or is it more spontaneous? It's more spontaneous. I what I find nice about book writing. A number of things that are a tremendous pleasure and privilege about book writing, but one of the things that is nice is that it is squishy. So the deadlines are squishy. You've got a really big, challenging, interesting, engaging goal, but it's always possible to to, to drop it this week, this month, this afternoon, yeah, because something else comes up. And I've found that that means that you can. Uh, ask more of yourself, be be more demanding. You can squeeze things tighter because the book can always give in the short term. Clearly, there's a risk there that the book just gives and gives and gives and gives and you never write the book. But hey, I'm nine books in, so I'm I'm willing to say that doesn't actually happen. I do, in fact, write the books. But in the short term, it means I can pack other things in. I can take advantage of opportunities that come up at fairly short notice. And if if it was on a more rigid schedule, I would have to pack in, um, you know, build in more spare time, more more flexible time, to accommodate the unknown. So this is insider baseball, but are are you of the school of thought that locks in a multi book deal, and you're like, I don't have to think about it now, I just write, or are you of the school of thought of each book on its own? I take my agent's advice, and my agent is of the view that uh, single book deals are best. So. Why she thinks that, I don't know. I just trust her. So that's what an agent is for, right? Uh, yeah, my agent says something similar. I don't know why either, but <laughs> there must be there there must be some there must be some sense in that. And now you live you live near you live in Oxford or or near that area? I live in the center of Oxford. I'm just looking out of my window now. I mean it's pretty dark now, but I can see the the dreaming spires of Oxford from my window. Beautiful city. And you're and now you, and you have a, a 
a fellowship at one of the colleges there? Yes, I have. Actually, these days it's a it's a, a membership. So I had an yeah. eight year uh, visiting fellowship, which is, I mean, it's a great honor, but it's a fairly loose affiliation. I get to use the library, I get to go for dinner, but I'm not paid money and I'm not expected to contribute in a formal way. So it's a nice association. And at the end of the fellowship, they said, well, look, we we like having you around. You're a local. Um, we can't extend the fellowship anymore, but we can make you an associate member. So I still get to use the library and go for dinner. And that's that's what matters. So that's what, that's what I was going to get at. So now you have access to these libraries. They're great uh, libraries. They're amazing. That's why, what I'm why, When I was an undergraduate, why did I not understand quite what a privilege it was to be able to go to these amazing spaces. In Oxford, the libraries are particularly beautiful, but really there are no ugly libraries in the world. All libraries fundamentally are wonderful places because they're all full of books. Why didn't I get it as an undergraduate? Just what a privilege it was. Yeah, to, to, to walk to walk through those and to sit among those carols and to, to bring out those books. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm hoping in non-pandemic time, just to, so you fulfill my own daydreams, that you, you go and sit and think and write. You walk the grounds of Oxford and in my dreams, for some reason, the dons are wearing graduation robes. So yeah, <laughs> I don't know into your library where, uh, you know, it's like, imagine it's like a Bertrand Russell style character in his office with a fire going in a pipe and you go into your, into his beautiful library and think deep thoughts. It, Oxford always just seemed like, and this is on my mind because Georgetown has a, um, they have an apartment there. I think it's, I think it's Oxford, not Cambridge. I think it's Oxford. And so they have a like sabbatical fellowship you can apply for, which is, you know, you can go live in our house or apartment that's like right there in, in, in downtown Oxford. It has an association with one of the colleges. I forgot which one. Yeah, you got to um, try it. You got to try it. I mean, it's, it's, it is actually uh, almost as dreamy as you imagine. It's really quite close to, to being what you think of in your imagination. It is an amazing city a beautiful city and a beautiful university and I feel very lucky to to live here and yeah i do go to the libraries regularly and just spend time you know checking out the literature or just going somewhere else or just a different space to work where you're freer of distractions and no one no one can phone you and and yeah it, it it's it's great it even during the pandemic i've been going to the libraries they've been open on a partial basis, very socially distanced, everyone wears a mask, it's not as much fun. Uh, and in the, the most recent weeks, things have got really bad, even the libraries have closed, and, and that's probably wise, but I'm looking forward to to getting back there when it's safe. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm always, the US, we're too new, we're too young, but the the value of aesthetics for cognitive context is something that's often ignored here. I mean, Georgetown built a library in the 19... 60s or 70s in a sort of brutalist concrete style <laughs> it's like why uh, but they do have a beautiful old library in the main castle on the campus that I, I do miss i do miss going i do miss going to that uh, but yeah. that that notion of the the aesthetic context which i talk about it a lot you know on the podcast i this is the advice i used to give call undergrads when at u.s universities that would get burnt out on their work and I used to encourage them to go find the most exotic possible place to do their work. 
And it was a big challenge. They would egg each other on and they'd go into the woods and they'd send pictures of um, doing Spanish flashcards next to a waterfall. And there's this physics student who figured out how to break onto the roof of the physics building. You could see all the stars. And, and I enjoyed that because we, you know, we don't, uh, this one, I also had my, my sort of infamous uh, Heidegger with he Hefeweizen article I wrote about like, look, go to a pub and like have a drink and like change the context into something that's interesting and stimulating and, and uh, aesthetically engaging and just not your dorm room. Or, I'm totally uh, with you on this. I think this is, this is wisdom. And I think more and more people are realizing how important location is. Now we're all locked down one way or another. It's really hard to go somewhere new. I was listening to your recent podcast and, and it was I'll put on a really thick coat and sit by a fire pit. And I was thinking, yeah, that's good advice, but it's, it's <clears throat> excuse me, it's pretty sad that that's where, <clears throat> it's pretty sad that that's where we've got. You see, I'm choked up even thinking about it. Yeah. I hope that people remember and they learn from this, that the value of a different place, a different context, because we need variety. And it, it can give yourself a healthy variety by going to a, an interesting new place that inspires study, inspires deep thoughts, rather than variety from, oh, I'll check my email again, I'll check my phone again. Yeah. You know, that's, yeah. We, we, need to, we need to satisfy that need in a, in a productive way. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm with you. I, I hope that's one of the many, one of the many insights, uh, one of the many insights that come out of uh, come out of the period. Uh, the other thing I've heard, the other prognostication is look back to the Spanish flu. Uh, what happened in the U.S. after that terror was the roaring 20s. People just went nuts. So <laughs> I think it's probably that feels a little bit more on brand, at least for the U.S., that like when as, as the pandemic passed, instead of like a deeply reflective reset to our life and our values, um, people are going to get drunk at sports arenas. But <laughs> well, we'll, we'll see. Maybe yeah. both. There's room in life for both. Uh, yeah, exactly. I'm willing to. Uh, I'm willing to, to do a couple sports arenas when the time comes. So, <laughs> we'll we'll see. All right. So, we'll, well, let's let's move on to the book. So, uh, your new book in the U.S. is called The Data Detective. This is one of those confusing things that happens sometimes, where it's a different different title everywhere else. But I think yep. I was going to say most of my listeners are here, though. I got a report from my podcast hosting company that said the number one location from which this podcast is downloaded. I had to look it up. It was a suburb of London, which where I think there's a data center. So actually, I think <laughs> the single city that's most represented is actually probably the the greater London area. So so uh, I shouldn't just assume. I shouldn't just assume that that everyone here is is going to see the U.S. style. So in the U.S., it is called the Data Detective. And what's the name in the the U.K. version? Yeah, if you're listening in in London or really anywhere outside North America, it's called How to Make the World Add Up. But it's the same book, different title, same book. Now, is this this is connected strongly to the radio show? I mean, just in terms of uh, the spirit of like trying to trying to uh, give people the tools to understand the data that's relevant to life. Yes, the spirit is very much there. So I'm trying to help people think more clearly about the world, and my argument is looking at the data, looking at the numbers, is going to help you think more clearly about the world. Um, but but that's not the only thing. If you if you're looking at the evidence, you're looking at the data, and you're you know you're stuck at the bottom of a great big hole of ideology or emotion, wishful thinking, preconceived ideas, having more data 
having more expertise is not going to dig you out of that hole. In fact, it may actually dig you deeper in the hole. So you need the numbers, but you need to ask the right questions about the numbers, and you also need to ask the right questions about your own preconceptions and biases. And that's really what the book's about. And I give 10 pretty simple rules of thumb. It's not a super technical book. A lot of it is just, here are habits that I have learned from years of thinking about numbers in the news. These are the questions you need to ask if you want to really understand what's going on. I want to take a moment to thank another one of our sponsors, Green Chef. Now, here's the thing. Our family has not been, obviously, eating out at restaurants a lot recently. We try to do takeout to help the local establishments, but we live in a small town. There's not that many local establishments. So we get a little bit bored by getting the same food again and again, and we're getting a little bit tired of the same recipes. We're cooking a ton. We're kind of cycling through the same recipes again and again. This is where Green Chef comes in to save the day. It is the first USDA certified organic meal kit company. That means you can enjoy clean ingredients that you trust that are seasonally sourced for peak freshness. You get these ingredients pre-measured, perfectly portioned, mostly prepped. So it does not take that much time to cook, but you're still cooking something that is really interesting, really healthy, and something that is new. It is a way that we're actually able to get some variety back into our home-cooked meals. Green Chef is known for its specialty offerings, depending on whatever lifestyle you have in terms of your health and eating. You can get keto or paleo or vegan or vegetarian meals. That's what they are known for. It's the meal kit company for people who really care about eating well. So we have a pretty good offer set up for our listeners. If you go to greenchef.com slash 90deep, the number 90 and the word deep, and you use the code 90deep, you will get $90 off, including free shipping. That's greenchef.com slash 90deep and use that promo code 90deep to get $90 off and free shipping. Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well. I also want to talk about ladder. You see, 2012 was a big year in my life. I think of it as the pivot point into adulthood. It's when my wife and I bought our first house. It is also when we had our first kid. So what came along with that transition was I got my first life insurance policy. A term life insurance policy that did not cost too much each month, but gave a lot of coverage. So if God forbid something happened to me, if there's assassins that Facebook and Instagram have been sending after me ever since I started complaining against social media, if they finally catch me and get that poison blow dart into my neck, my family would be taken care of. If you have a family, if you have kids, you also need term life insurance coverage. Ladder makes that process easy. You need just a few minutes and a phone or laptop to apply. Ladder smart algorithms work in real time, so you'll find out instantly if you're approved. There's no hidden fees. You can cancel your policy anytime. And since life insurance costs more as you age, now is the time to cross it off your list. Or if you're a deep question subscriber, I should say to move the corresponding Trello card from your due this week to the done column in your Capture Configure Control Productivity System. So check out Ladder today to see if you're instantly approved. Go to ladderlife.com deep. 
That's L-A-D-D-E-R life.com slash deep. Ladderlife.com slash deep. And now let's get back to my interview with Tim Harford. Now, it's, it's, uh, the philosophical context is what I find really interesting you know, about your work, right? This notion of you taking these numbers, um, they can serve something greater, but you have to know what that something greater is. Like, in other words, uh, numbers denuded of context are uh, whatever, you, whatever you want them to be. And it, and it feels like we see that. Uh, the pandemic, I guess, was a good example. There's, there's tons of numbers on everything that can be wielded, wielded for, for almost anything. Now, would you say though, your approach is there's a way of approaching numbers that can help you identify if you have a sort of bias or blind spot, or would you say the approach is there's, there's a sort of greater work and pursuit of truth and philosophical purity that you should also be pursuing in your life and that you can then deploy numbers to help it. I mean, how do we, how do we best understand your prescription for letting numbers do more good than harm? I think the starting point is you need to want to understand the world. You need to understand what what's true and what isn't true. And if that's where you're coming from, I can help you and the numbers will help you. If instead you're trying to win an argument, convince yourself that your side are, are right, you know, that you're your team are the good guys and the other team are the bad guys, anything like that. I'm not sure I can help you and uh, unless you're willing to change. And I'm not sure the numbers will help you either because those numbers, you can use them in, in an argument. You can twist them. You can, you, you can twist them without even knowing you're twisting them to convince yourself of what you want to be true. So I think it starts with that open-minded desire to understand the world. Once you've got that, Everything else, I think, falls into place. It's, it's actually not as complicated as, as people think. Uh, I can give you a really simple example. The, um, the health secretary here in the, the UK, a guy called Matt Hancock, possibly to distract from this catastrophic pandemic, over the summer he uh, made a statement. He said, oh, if, if everyone in the country lost who was overweight, if they all lost five pounds, then the, the UK's health system would save $100 million over five years, which is about 100, sorry, 100 million pounds over five years. It's about $150 million. And uh, people emailed me and said, how does he know that? Is that true? What's he, you know, why is he, why is he fat shaming? Was he just all this? And I just said, look, you just, what are the questions we need to ask? The questions are actually really simple. Is 100 million pounds, about $150 million, is that a lot? It's not a lot over five years, over 67 million people. In yeah. fact, it's about 30, 30 uh, pence each per year or 50 cents. So with, you don't need a calculator. You might need Google to tell you the population of the UK, but I think if you live in the UK, you probably should know the population of your own country. You don't need any maths that my nine-year-old son doesn't know. You just need to, to stop and think for a second, and you can figure out, what this guy actually said, which is that actually the sums of money involved are trivial. And that's just a, a really simple example of it's not complicated maths. Just, it's just that process of taking a deep breath and saying, what does that number actually mean? And how can I put it into some context? Having that habit, right. Like, like an example I, from here is um, surrounding 
coronavirus vaccines, there was this sort of enumeracy going around for a while where people was mixing up different things. Oh, this is 95% effective. The coronavirus has a 99 point whatever percent survival rate. And somehow then without thinking much, jumping from like, oh, I'm better off getting the coronavirus and why bother getting the vaccine or something like this, right? Where it's something that it takes like a minute of pulling that apart to be like, oh, that's not what, none of that fits together. Yeah. Right? That conclusion does not follow from these axioms. You're missing a couple propositions in there. But that was, that was another example that seems uh, where it's, you don't need a lot of math, but you have to just wait, what exactly does this mean? What's yeah. effective, this mean? what's survival rate? I mean, these aren't the same thing. So what's the, et cetera. Um, and, 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 probably it, a lot and it turns out it, that it's, it's actually a really uh, interesting question. What does 95% effective mean? And trying to explain what that means. I, I've asked several experts on my radio show to explain it, and they often get tangled up. It's not a straightforward thing. And it, it's basically, okay, we, we gave thousands of people the vaccine. We gave thousands of other people uh, a meningitis vaccine instead, or maybe some salt water. We gave them a placebo. And then for every 100 people in the placebo arm who didn't get the vaccine, for every 100 people who got sick, only five people who received the vaccine got sick. So 20 times as many people in the placebo arm as in the vaccine arm. So that then you're starting to understand what this means. But you could go further. You can say, look, nobody who got the vaccine went to hospital. I mean, that it depends exactly which vaccine, and but that's basically... There's a very, very low hospitalization rate. And I think nobody has died who's received the vaccine in the trials. So or nobody's died of COVID. So you could say, actually, in a, in a way, that these vaccines are more efficacious. Or you could ask a different question. You could say, well, do they prevent against becoming infected in an asymptomatic way? And maybe you're still passing on the virus. Well, we don't know the answer to that question yet. So these are not complicated questions, but... They're not straightforward to answer. And I'm yeah. really encouraging people to ask, well, hang on, that thing, that 95%, do I even know what that means? And if I don't know what that means, I should, be, I should be looking for a media source that would tell me. I should be looking for a journalist who will explain this to me rather than a journalist who just prints the number 95 in really big font and, and calls that data journalism. Well, I mean, I guess even more, another example that's even more basic, but more interesting even is when you're talking about vaccinations at a large scale, you start to run into the background rate of lots of bad things. And that's like an interesting point. I, I was reading about the background rate of like Bell's palsy, for example. It's high enough that once you give a certain number of people a vaccine, there's going to be some who have this reaction within a day of it or, or, or near it or something like that, but it's completely unrelated. Or uh, if you're vaccinating a lot of people in long-term care who are near the end of their life, you have a pretty high background rate of people dying. Yeah. And so just by, you just assume once you get to a million or two million, there's interesting numbers here. Like, well, there's going to be X number of people who are going to die uh, the same day they got the vaccine. Completely unrelated. Uh, it's another interesting, but again, it's, as you're saying, it's, it, you begin to, numbers are interesting once you begin back of the envelope sanity checking yeah but we did so we did the numbers on on this for on, on my bbc radio show and we we figured out that of the most vulnerable groups who are top priority in the uk to be vaccinated so this is people over the age of 80 they're right at the front of the queue to be vaccinated 
as I speak to you, most of them have been vaccinated. We figured out a thousand of these people die every day. Yeah. Because it's the entire the entire population of a big country all over the age of 80. Of course, a lot of them die every day. A thousand die every day. And now they've all been vaccinated. And, and to be honest, I'm impressed that I haven't seen more uh, stupid, unfounded scare stories about vaccines based on that. But there must yeah. be people who've been vaccinated and died the next day, just purely as a matter of statistics. There's there's a, a lot of U.S. outlets now saying, hold my beer. <laughs> well, we'll get there here. <laughs> I'm sure we'll generate those stories. Uh, I, I, but I am impressed the U.K. did it because, yeah, a lot of people die. Um, that that's interesting. So what is your... Having covered, I, I don't talk a lot of pandemic on, on my show because I figure people, you know, are uh, not not everything in their life should be talking. They need something worse. We're not talking about it. <laughs> and I'm no expert. So it's best it's not me. But you are an expert in the sense that you've been doing radio for the last 10 months that gets at this. So having talked to all the experts and looking at all the numbers, what is the, the Tim Harford take on... Um, not even what we went wrong. What, what's your, what's give us the silver lining. Give us the, not the silver lining, the optimism. We're in a hard time, but what's going to happen? Well, here's, here's the hostage to fortune. But I think that in rich countries that have plenty of vaccine, it's going to get, it's going to seem like nothing is happening. And then it's going to get a lot better very quickly. Okay. Let me give you the, the rough guide to the mathematics of that. So I know the situation better in the UK, but the, the broad story is going to be very similar in the US. So in the UK, two-thirds of all the people who died were either residents of care homes or were over 80. Most of them, of course, were both. Almost all of those people have been vaccinated already now. Two shots? Just, just the first shot. It's a good, that's okay. a good point. because so It's coming. Uh, the the, the drop-off is coming once you get that second dose. The sec well, actually, the, the first dose gives quite a lot of protection, as far as we can tell. The reason the second dose is there is for, is for a booster. And there's an interesting controversy as to how important it is to get the booster immediately or whether you can wait a bit. Yes. But and I, the, the data in Israel, which is changing, uh, yeah. was, that was an interesting part of the UK controversy. Was that initial Israel study that said, oh, the first, uh, the first dose is not as effective as we thought. And then, then they come out few days later and actually wait we're seeing the first dose is really effective and yeah one of the one of the mistakes people make in that is is the first dose is never very effective for the first two weeks it doesn't matter whether you got a booster shot or not the booster shot you have to wait at least three weeks before the booster anyway so if you look at the first dose the day after the first dose is given it doesn't work right but there's nothing that's nothing to do with the booster if you wait two weeks then the first dose seems to work pretty well uh, now, I'm not an immunologist, and people disagree about the details of how important the timing of the second dose is, but everybody seems to agree the first dose does a lot of good. And it does a lot of good after about two weeks. So, you know, we don't know how amazing it is. We don't know whether it's 100%, 95%, 80% effective at preventing hospitalization, but there is some reason to believe it will prevent most hospitalizations. But it takes time. So you've got a two-week delay after vaccination, after your first dose. Then you've got um, maybe another two weeks before any infection would actually send you to hospital. And then maybe you've got another two weeks before, if you're going to die, it's going to take you two more weeks to die. Yeah. So there's this inertia in the system. A, a vaccination now, it will not 
show up in the death st statistics until the end of February. Uh, no, middle of March. But the, but the vaccination you know, is, is going to start working. And if you target the vaccination on the, those very vulnerable groups, it makes a huge difference. So we're sitting here in the UK, as I say, they've all, all the vulnerable groups pretty much have been vaccinated by the end of January. We're going to see nothing for another couple of weeks, and then it's going to start coming through. And then in March, it should be quite dramatic, particularly the yeah. death rate, but hopefully the hospitalizations uh, as well. And then everything else just gets easier and easier. So the longer you extend the lockdown, it's you're suddenly, you've been pushing uphill, pushing uphill. It's, it's constantly been threatening to kind of roll backwards and, and crush you as you, and suddenly you're over the hill and it's it's not Sisyphus anymore, right? Suddenly it's just rolling down, you rolling down the other side and away from you and it's getting easier and easier and easier to push because the vaccine's helping all along. That is what I think we can expect in countries that have got plenty of vaccine. Of course, there's a lot of the world that doesn't have plenty of vaccine and they're going to have to wait a long time. Yeah. Well, that's, that is okay. But there's some, there's some optimism there. What would you recommend for someone, let's say like a, a standard listener of my show, let's say you're, uh, you've got kids, you're a knowledge worker, you're, you know, whatever your kids are remote learning, your, your, your work is remote, you're stressed out. Should we, to what degree, like whenever I dive into like data on coronavirus, I go down rabbit holes and I get stressed out and confused. And I'm a pretty smart guy. To, to what degree should someone like me or one of my listeners should we should we be just? And I'm getting to your slow your slow data consumption idea from your book here. I'm trying to lead up to it. But should, to what degree should we be pulling away? What 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 is the responsible news or information consumption right now? Because I it at a high level it seems to give a lot of heartburn. And there's always something. Yeah. And and some of them go away, and now we have to think about variants, and now we have to think about uh, spike protein mutations and how this affects high titer uh, immune responses. And as you can tell, I, 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 I read about these things, and, and I have the superpower of I never forget anything I read. Is that should I just not be reading this? Like, it's not going to change my behavior. I kind of know what to do. I, I don't go to. Yeah. Uh, I don't have an office to go to. I, uh, you know, it's not hard like the mitigation you're supposed to do. So am I making it better or worse? What should we do? What's the responsible civic thing to do here in terms of exposing ourselves to this information? I think news consumption, it, it does you more good and gives you more insight and is less stressful if you slow it down. I know I feel like I'm betraying the tribe here. I write for a daily newspaper, although in my defense, I write for the weekly magazine in a daily newspaper. So I think... A lot of the news consumption you need to be informed, to take responsible choices in everyday life, in at the, the ballot box, you're going to get that from a from good weekly news stories. The you know, I, I recommend the FT Weekend supplement, of course, on Saturdays, but mm -hmm. The Economist, The New Yorker, we can go monthly, go to sources like The Atlantic. The new scientist, nature, whatever it is that interests you, you can't read them all, but you're going to learn a lot more on a weekly basis. It's really interesting to reflect if you look at, say, The Economist on writing about financial markets versus, say, uh, Bloomberg TV on financial markets. They're both good, serious sources, well funded, really focused on what's going on. But for most people, you don't need to know what's happening in financial markets. If, on a rolling basis. 
for a few professionals, it's extremely valuable, but for most people, it's not helpful. The economist is going to give you a much better perspective. They'll sit back, they'll think about it, they'll put the data into perspective, a lot of the noise you don't need to get, and 10 times less information, or more formally, I should say, one-tenth the information with proper context is, is vastly more valuable. Just a simple example, every day on the evening news, we have a press conference here in the UK where the death toll is reported. This is how many people died today. Except it's not actually how many people died today because there are big reporting delays on the number of deaths. So people are fixating on this terrible number, which is A, stressful, B, noisy, it bounces around all the time, doesn't tell you about the trend, and C, it's not even the number that people think it is. If you instead check every week, then you really get a sense of of, of what's happening to the curve and whether we're, and, and it looks like in the UK, we're, the cases are coming down fast now, hospitalizations slowly coming down, deaths, it'll be a delay before deaths come down, but we're, we've got through the second wave, I, I think, if we're careful. Um, but you, could, you don't need to do the daily news to see that. So slow it down, get the context. If yeah. the journalist isn't answering those questions about context and perspective, find a different journalist. Yeah. So weekly scale, I like this. We listen to more or less once a week is what you're saying. And yeah, it's podcast. That, you can listen to it in the US, no problem. And, and that will, I like that. Yes. Yeah, slower, slower consumption. What do you think in, in a counterfactual where we did not have public, I go back and forth on this. But these counters you're talking about, like what's going on today? It's not even, by the way, daily. CNN now does um, deaths so far today, which is like yeah. uh, so you literally like you're. They have a number uh, moving, like an odometer, you know, while you're watching TV. I know those numbers are very important for public health officials. Very important for politicians to understand what's going on. You need to know where the virus is and what the trends are. But I don't know. But what about a counterfactual world where we weren't exposed to them for some, I don't know what, why that information would be hidden, but it feels like people might be better off almost if it was, all right, here's the state of this week. Our hospitals seem full. Uh, the virus is, is at a heavy spread level now still, you know, I don't know if that would just be better than looking at these graphs and is it coming down? Is it, you know, looking for the daily, is this a reporting lag? Are we going down the hill and uh, looking at those numbers? Is that yeah. like is that too many numbers? I mean, I'm just I'm just comparing this to like in the Spanish flu, uh, 1918 flu. They, they didn't have these numbers. Now, of course, probably a lot more people died because of that. But it, was, it must have been a different experience. It must have been like, oh, things are fine. Oh, things seem terrible. There's people uh, outside of the hospitals on stretchers in the streets. Um, oh, that's not happening anymore. Okay, I guess things are fine. And it was, I don't know if that's an ignorance is bliss type thing or if it's an example of you know maybe too much numbers is overwhelming somehow to our just our day-to-day ability to function. Well, I read a great book a couple of years ago called uh, Digital Minimalism. And I don't know if you've heard of it, Cal, but it, it's really good. You should check it out. I think the and author should of, give it OBE is what, what needs to happen. <laughs> I think so too. One of the really important lessons of that book is to be mindful and deliberate in the choices you make about the tools that you use. And of course, the particular focus was digital tools, but and that's a principle for life. And the principle works with, with data as well. So, okay, I should write a book called Data Minimalism or Mindful, Mindful Data or something. I don't know. What, what is it that we want these numbers for? If you're a public health official, you need 
the data as quickly as possible, and it needs to be really detailed. You need where it happened, uh, what the circumstances were. Was it an inside transmission event or an outside transmission event? Here in the UK, we have great data on genetic sequencing, so we can track mute, uh, mutations of the virus. It's really, it's really useful. As a consumer of news, why do I need these numbers? I would say I, I, I need these numbers maybe every week to understand where, where we are. Are things getting worse? Are they getting better? Is there a chance the schools will reopen soon or not? Should I be extra careful because there's a lot of virus around or not? These things don't change that fast. Weekly is fine. Monthly, to be honest, is probably fine for some of this stuff. Yeah. So it, it's all about what you want to use the data for. What skills from a math or numeracy perspective, what should we all have? If people have time, they can do some online classes. My, my listeners like uh, self-learning, they're autodidacts. What should, we, what should we all learn in a perfect world? So as far as consuming data and making sense of data is concerned, I think it's astonishing yeah. how few real quantitative skills are needed. The questions are actually often about things like, what is this number actually measuring? When we had that conversation about vaccine efficacy, what do you mean by efficacy? It's not a question of what you mean by 95%. It's a question of what you mean by efficacy. What does it mean for a vaccine to be efficacious? What is it actually present, preventing? Death, hospitalization, illness, infection? What's it? So, so many of the mistakes that people make are mistakes of not getting the context, not comparing one number to another number, uh, not asking about definitions. Yeah. And so the, the skills that I think people would do well to hone are actually not skills you're going to learn in a statistics course. They are just skills of, of being calm, noticing your emotional reaction, which may be coloring the way you interpret data, slowing down, asking questions about context, about comparisons, yeah. about definitions. So yeah. I'm not aware of a course that teaches those. It's that's, the, yeah. I mean, is there, of course they so can is there, book. Is there well, yeah. Step one: read uh, Data Detective. Um, is there an equivalent in the numerical world to the advice I often, you know, give my my listeners and just the world of ideas in general, cultural ideas about any sort of topic? I, I often tell them take a page out of Socrates. You got to take the idea that appeals or you have some intimation that's correct, but, or what have you, and you want to understand it better. If you really want to understand it better, uh, take an opposing view and clash them together. Read the best possible other view on it, the, the best possible critique, read the best possible alternative, let them, let them crash. And, and in that dialectical collision, like real roots of understanding, if you've done that, then you really know something. Whereas if you just have the idea you like, then you just are, you have sort of a, an intellectual groupyism. It's not knowledge, it's information. Is there an equivalent when with with uh, numbers I, I so that that can be helpful although it can sometimes confuse because when it gets super technical then you could have we see this with climate change so you see serious scientists and you see basically chances and trolls and they're all using loads of squiggles loads of graphs and it's really hard to know who to trust so unless you're willing to do a lot of technical work that doesn't necessarily work but i do think it is it's always worth getting a second opinion, asking yourself whether the person you're reading is giving you 
the context you need is explaining these terms or is are they trying to persuade you of something are they trying to win some argument or are they just giving you useful comparisons and useful information and yeah. i think it's it's not hard to to notice whether that's happening or not another useful discipline is to just try to explain something to someone else if you feel you can actually explain it you've probably gone some way to understanding it if the first question that this person you're explaining it to asks you, you realize, oh, actually, uh, I don't understand. I didn't, oh, I didn't. Then that's exposed a, a weakness in your knowledge that you can go back and fix. And I, I write towards the end of the data detective, it's, it's, um, it's quite a bracing experience trying to, to explain even simple everyday stuff like how does a flush lavatory work, let alone how does a mRNA vaccine work. The experience of trying to do that can be really informative because it tells you yourself about what you do and don't know. It's very yeah. easy to to tell yourself this this kind of comforting lie that you really you're really on top of the story, and then the moment you actually try and explain it, you realize you're not. That's interesting. This is an interesting distinction because I'm thinking about the context where I I normally give that Socratic advice is usually the issues will be more either like political or philosophical of nature, in which case. It's not too hard to find here's like a well-respected thinker on the other side of this, you know, because in, the, in those worlds, there's a sort of public intellectual class and, and they, they fall on different parts of the philosophical and partisan perspective. So it's not hard to be like, oh, I, here's a, a, a common belief of, of, let's say, like the, the, the American progressive left. It's not hard to find here's a well-known public intellectual on the right who has a different view. And then you can clash them. But what you're saying, which I, which I 100% agree with, is that when you're talking about technical stuff, that's no longer so clear, right? It's not like, oh, well, you know, here's this like professional intellectual class of philosophers and I can just kind of choose from my people. When it's technical stuff, it's, I don't know, I, I saw a chart on uh, Twitter. And like, this is something I noticed during the pandemic when when I'm searching for information, uh, you'll come across like these charts and I'll be interesting because they'll have a little watermark. Like, well, who, okay. So who, who built this chart? And it, it's just, it's the most random things. It, it's like a, a guy who runs a financial consultancy in Arizona or a political operative or, you know, <laughs> so there's a, a context collapse, I guess, to, to borrow that Dana Boyd turn. There's a, there's a, there's a, a context collapse, um, with numbers sometimes where it's like, well, because, because I guess their, their purity, their abstraction, just, they, they just seen numbers put out technically, they bring with them their own authority. It's very different than, if I'm looking for a philosophical or political argument that uh, pushes back on something I believe, I would never just look on Twitter and just find some random person tweeting about it. I'm like, well, of course, there's no authority in that. But if that random person puts out a graph that's superimposing, I don't know, whatever, Swedish uh, ICU cases versus blah, blah, blah. You're like, well, that's a graph. Looks pretty good to me. Yep. <laughs> so that's an interesting distinction. The world of technical and the world of technical information you can't necessarily because it because it's hard to identify the sources yes, you were more on your own right interesting in a way that i would not tell someone in a philosophical context like look you just need to start like just build up a philosophy of of your own critical theories from scratch or something and see if it makes sense it, it's like a different type of beast it's uh so that's a very interesting distinction yeah i i give you a simple example so there there was this big movement in the uk uh against lockdowns which i think philosophically is completely defensible. You can say, yeah, I know lives are at stake, but freedom's really important. So we're opposed to lockdowns. Okay, fine. I, I don't 
I don't fully agree, but I really respect where that argument is coming from. But then a lot of the lockdown skeptics, which is what they called themselves, would, would then start saying, oh, well, the uh, actually the infection fatality rate of this thing is really low. It's like flu. And you, you'd look at the data and you're like, hang on a minute, but you've you've taken the worst flu pandemic for the last 120 years and you've compared it to the infection fatality rate in India, which has a very low, uh, is a very young demographic. And we know that this virus tends to kill the old, not the young. And so you, these two, you can't make that comparison. Or, or And then when, when you push back and this, you say, well, look, 100,000 people have died in the UK, 400,000 people have died in the US. How could how could it really be so safe? And then they'll say, well, ah, but the WHO, they they exaggerated the, the fatality rate. They said the infection fatality rate was was 3.4% back in March, and they were completely wrong about that. And you look at the article and you say, oh, yeah, it does look like the WHO said the infection fatality rate was, was 3.4%. Um, but it, it wasn't. Uh, that's actually a misunderstanding of what a fatality rate is and how a fatality rate is calculated. But then you need, you're starting to go really deep in the technical weeds. And the trouble is, if you're dealing with someone who's acting in bad faith, they can confuse you and confuse you. It's, it's amazing to watch some of the really good fact checkers dealing with streams of misinformation. Yeah. The, 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 just the sheer effort involved to correct point by point by point I think it's often better to say, okay, I'm going to find some some sources I trust who who don't seem to be uh, lying, who don't seem to be contradictory, contradicting the mainstream of public opinion, who aren't making really weird claims that don't seem to you know, match up with common sense. Um, so, I mean, I'm all in favour of Socrates, but it gets hard when it's when it's really technical. It gets hard. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, the the one I saw, like uh, you just mentioned, was. Um, Let's look at the the uh, IFR for a bad flu year, and now let's look at the IFR tranched out for young people, yeah. and say, See, look, for young people, uh, it's it's better than a bad flu year. But it's like, well, wait a second, you're comparing the IFR for young people to the IFR for everybody, and yeah. and why would you do that? Of course, most only of the only if you wanted to mislead us, right? Yeah, most. Uh, so, uh, if you want to do a comparison, I guess you could compare IFR for young people to IFR for flu, and that's an interesting question. There's not great data on it, but yeah, that's another one I noticed. It's a it's a subtle slip, um, but you're like, yeah, but most of that IFR for flu was also among older people. Older people in general, if you're gonna are going to be the preponderance of deaths in anything that <laughs> is affecting the immune system. So, what you're saying is basically. You have to think a lot more about who the person is delivering the information, um, and and maybe some of this is specific to to I was going to say specific to coronavirus, but no, you're right. Climate change has a similar issue because when we're talking about philosophy or politics, it's not so much that uh, I'm trying to understand. There's like a truth, and and people have competing claims. It's sort of you understand what lane someone is in. Like I'm a member of this party, or I am a part of this intellectual school. And I'm trying to do my best to, to, to argue for that intellectual school. And then you can say, okay, what intellectual school has a different take and, and we can compare them. Whereas with uh, coronavirus or, or something like climate change, it's just, it, there hasn't been time for these schools to develop or anything. It's just, everyone is making truth claims on this is just the, what's happening, you know? And then, yeah. and then it matters. Yeah. So the, so, so you're saying we have to be like, uh, we have to get in the, we have to, what's the right role for it? We have to understand people and their intentions 
which yes <laughs> that's hard it is hard and and of course that that there's a classic logical fallacy as well you, you know you're criticizing the the person rather than the argument ad hominem i mean that you're not supposed to do that but actually it probably is not a bad idea to go oh okay so this is anthony fauci he's been serving the united states of america all his life studying mm-hmm. viruses and infectious diseases all his life my neighbor he, he lives not my actual neighbor but we, we we live near each other in the city so there you go so this is what he says and uh this is what some random guy on twitter says now it is possible that fauci is wrong it is possible that fauci is lying to us but i think occam's razor suggests that probably the considered opinion of the one of the leading disease scholars in the country backed up by most other epidemiologists that's a good place to start not some random guy on twitter um it's always conceivable that the random guy on twitter is right and that fauci is is lying or that he's he's making an honest mistake but i think you have to start from on a on a bayesian perspective you know your 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 prior should be that actually the mainstream experts are probably right on most yeah. of these issues Main, mainstream basically it's a good heuristic uh, mainstream experts, publications that have good editors and hire good people. Uh, and then, you know, have, there is some skepticism to remain, but that's a good heuristic. It's the financial times, New York times. It, it seems to me like the, the, the quote unquote biases you might see with something like the New York times is not going to be, let's trick people into believing the wrong thing, right? Like you're not going to have that issue or like, or we just get things really wrong. You might see, uh, they tend to do more like nudging towards like we want people to maybe we're trying to nudge towards a particular whatever. So we might the tone in which we cover something or maybe what we emphasize or not, but that's a lot, that's a lot less of a problem than this is the wrong conclusion from the numbers. Right. Yes. Or this and is the New York uh, times is, is, is not going to lie to you. Uh, they, they may accidentally tell you something that's not true. They may focus your attention on things um, that, you know, you could focus attention on other things, maybe emphasizing particular kinds of stories. They may emphasize stories about how Donald Trump is a bad president. They may emphasize stories about uh, social justice, for example. They may emphasize stories about the dangers of COVID. Um, they'll right. make editorial choices, but they, and I, I don't, I don't write for the Financial Times. I write for a rival newspaper. But the, the, the sorry, I, I do write for the Financial Times. I don't write for the New York Times. But the New York Times is not going to lie to you. Out and you out. Won't be, you won't be, yeah, you won't be outright misinformed. Uh, yeah, you're not, you're not going to think the IFR is less than the flu. Yeah, absolutely. I saw a wonderful uh, thing on on Twitter, uh, and I I know you 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 are right to distrust Twitter, but every now and then you do get a little pearl. Um, a German scientific uh, journalist called uh, Kai Kupferschmidt, who's been tracking the mutant variants. He's 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 really good on that story. And he he just wrote, uh, on mis- misinformation, the most important point is not to teach people to distrust what they read and to critically appraise sources of information. The most important point is to distrust, is to teach people to distrust what they think and to critically appraise their own biases when consuming information. And I, I think that's a really insightful, I mean, that's, yeah. that's, whole chapters of the data detective in one tweet. What is more likely that a 
serious mainstream scientist or journalist is going to lie to you or that you're going to fool yourself. It, the, yeah. the latter is actually more likely. We're very, very good at fooling ourselves in, in trying to believe things that we want to believe. Yeah. Well, and in the American context, I think something that's often overlooked is taking the the public health disease response perspective to misinformation, which is that there's a, a uh, there's this Harvard professor. I sometimes I, she writes for the Atlantic sometimes, and she worked a lot on HIV mitigation. Um, I think her name's Julia Marcus, and she talks a lot yeah, about. She, she's like, she's really smart. She's interesting. Yeah, you know. Her. Okay, right. So she talks a lot about what's the right way to actually do disease intervention in populations, and 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 she always comes back to you need to understand, um, what like what's the underlying need that people have, and and how is that you know how is that need maybe driving people to do behaviors that are maybe epidemiologically not optimal. Um, but I think that could be writ large, like in the American context, uh, I'm, I'm a very empathetic guy. I know a lot of people from lots of different backgrounds and lots of different, you know, political aspects, you know, often underneath a lot of sort of misinformation consumptions, like, well, what's the underlying need that's driving them there? And there's like, well, there's this underlying hus just hostility or feeling of, of rejection or condescension. Like there's these underlying cultural things. Like, you know, if, uh, if they just, if, if you were just reasonable with this person, you know, they didn't, it, it, there's a lot in the America context where it's, people are just working backwards from like, I'm just pissed at this group and I'm just tired of these people. I'm tired of whatever. I'm tired of these elites or I'm tired of these, uh, these people in the country or whatever it is. And then once it is, you have a group, like, I just don't like, I just feel whatever I'm mad towards this group. Then yeah, the information will just follow that emotion. Like, well, good. Then I'll just, I don't really care about this information. I know it's really probably really wrong, but whatever, it helps my team and, and hurts the other team. So sort of just being less tribal. There's this tribal element to, to misinformation propagation where it's serving a deeper purpose, which is uh, I want my team to win. And yeah. so it's like the problem is, well, why, why are these teams so divided? And why do these teams hate? And so when we just look at the surface of like, well, if we could just, you know, whatever teach those hicks not to this or teach those elites not to this, you never get to the underlying issue, which is the need to be served is I'm really mad at that other team and I want my team to gain advantage and I don't want to give ground. And like, once that's the basis, um, yeah, great. I'll follow this guy. I kind of know he's probably nonsense, but whatever. He's helping my team hurting the other team. You know, Twitter, yeah. dunk. Let's go. The one thing I'd, I'd slightly tweak, I, I, I completely agree, but you said, uh, be less tribal, and that's really hard. And here's an easier thing that is almost as good, which is when you're considering a claim, reading a newspaper headline, scrolling through social media, although, of course, you shouldn't be scrolling through social media. It's probably not a good, a good use of your time. But you're consuming claims. You're, you're getting uh, assertions about the world. You should just stop and go, how does this make me feel? Is it making me feel vindicated? Yeah, I always knew that that guy was a crook. Is it making me feel angry? Is it making me feel uh, triumphant, joyful? Am I laughing? But just noticing that emotional response is so useful. It's, it's just a habit I try to cultivate. It takes three seconds. You don't even need to count to 10. Count to three. Notice your emotion. And then you're in a position to start thinking a little more calmly and clearly. And you can still say, okay, I'm, I'm feeling angry. This is an outrage, this fact that I've just learned. 
this is a tragedy, the number of people who are dying. It's okay to feel the emotions, but don't feel the emotions and, and let them constantly be washing over your cognition without realizing it. Well, I like that advice. And, and so I'll try to summarize this. We're, we're, we're short on time here, but, um, and you tell me if I'm getting this summary right, but when it, when it comes to data-rich information consumption in a time of a lot of that information, but a lot of fraughtness and emotion surrounding it, uh, go slower, have less but higher quality, so sort of read less, read better. So less things, but high quality things where, again, as we said, there might be some biases here or there, but it, it's not going to misinform. So you're, uh, so no social media probably, right? Get this from uh, some magazines, newspapers, things you, uh, things you trust, a podcast that you really trust. You, 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 you know, the host has been doing the show for 15 years for radio four, you trust them. Um, so slower, less, and, and then consume it mindfully when it does come time. Okay. I need to know what's going on in the world. I'm doing my weekly check-in, uh, notice the emotions you're saying, separate a little bit from them. Make sure that you're, you maybe have some skepticism of like, let me just make sure where these numbers are coming from and what, what, you know, who is this person? Are there any other like agendas here? Update your priors, build in that model of your world a little bit better. And then, you know, uh, go for a walk around, uh, field college (laughs) or whatever, or, uh, have some uh, coffee outside with a friend and move on and do other things. Am I, is, is this, so it's like read less, read better both the quality of what you read and in the quality of the skills you bring to it uh, and then let the rest of your life not be that. I think it's fantastic advice. The only thing I'd add is to try and let the spirit of curiosity infuse that throughout. So begin with curiosity. I want to understand the world. And as you're going through, asking yourself, is this actually answering questions I have about the world? Is this journalist providing me or this media source providing me with the information I need to answer further, deeper questions that I might have? Do I know where to go? Am I getting the context I need? If, if your curiosity is being simultaneously satisfied and then you're being made curious for more, that's a really good sign. Right. Okay. So if it's, here's why you should be mad at these people, or here's why you should just be really afraid. You're like, there's only so much of that I need, I guess. That's not, that's not furthering my curiosity. It's not, I'm not learning more. I'm not learning something useful or new. Um, so I like that. So bring a real critical eye to what do I want to get? What do I want to get out of consuming data? And is it serving Absolutely. something I wanted to serve? Yeah, that does sound very minimalist. I, I like the, uh, we have some, some consilience here. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> All right. Well, Tim, I, I, you've been generous with your time and I really appreciate it. I do look forward to when we can, we can do this again, uh, very inefficiently in in front of a small crowd. Except for here's my hack: we will do this in a we'll do this in a theater at some point, and we will record it for our you know record it for our podcast at the same time, and thus gain the advantages of the intimacy of a crowd plus the the efficiency of digital delivery. Um, I look forward to when that is possible. But until then, this has been really useful both to hear about your thoughts on data and how to consume it, and the Data Detective, which um, uh, sounds like a great book, but your story was also interesting too. It's just an example of one particular trajectory through the crafting of a deep life that's focused on a small number of things that you do well and opens up lots of interesting opportunities. So I think just your life story is an interesting tale as well. I'm, I'm really glad to hear it. So thank you very much, Cal. It's been a pleasure. And if I may offer you a piece of advice, stay deep. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Tim Harford. 
His book, which in the U.S. is called The Data Detective and elsewhere is called How to Make the World Add Up, is available this week. I also recommend checking out his podcast, Cautionary Tales. I'll be back on Thursday with the Habit Tune-Up mini-episode. And until then, as Tim just recommended, stay deep. Stay deep.